I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm sitting here in our studio with Clear and Vivid's executive producers, Graham Chedd and Sarah Chase, along with our new associate producer, Jean Chimay. Jean may be new to the production team, but she's been organizing my life now for many years. And we're all here to talk about our upcoming season of Clear and Vivid, Season 7, and some of our wonderful guests. Who do you want to talk about first? Well, we have to talk about our first guest, Tom Hanks. I loved the conversation, the part of the conversation we had about his fascination with typewriters, (laughs) appreciating the typewriter like a work of art or or a tool to make art. I was so taken with how much he sounded like a poet when he talked about typewriters. It was a That's right. sensate in every sense, you know, the the tactile and the audio and what it does to the paper. He was just loaded with these really sensate images about it. He made me feel that typing a letter for him was an act of creation before you ever got to the words you put into the into the keys. Yeah, yeah. And such a connector, such a I'm putting myself right into this paper and giving it to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, really personal. Thinking about the audience too, right? Every time he chose like which text to use or which color or which typewriter, he was thinking about the person he was sending this message to. So he was sort of yeah. preemptively writing yeah. this communication for that person. Also a graphic designer. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of concentration and ability to think about about something that we think of as mechanical, but he sees more as a work of art, must must be part of the foundation of what makes him such a good actor. Mm. You know, he's he's communicating with everything he's got. If he can th- talk about communicating with a typewriter that way, imagine what he what he does, how he accesses his brain and his emotions. Can we hear what Tom said in that section we're talking about? I send a lot of letters on typewriters because there is something about the purity of the words in your head and the sound of the percussion of the of the keys hitting the paper. When you type with a typewriter, you are not applying ink onto paper. You're stamping it into the fiber of the papers. If I was to type out, Dear Alan Alda, which, by the way, I will. <laughs> I'll go home and I'll, I'll send you a letter. I can't um, wait. That, th- th- those are the D-E-A-R space, A-L-A-N space, A-L-D-A space, are not on the surface of the paper. They are inside the fabric of the paper. Uh, and that alone, to me, it turns it into a form of a graphic art. It's not just a—and never mind what idea might be communicated in there. Physically, if you put it in a drawer, it'll last a thousand years. Uh, have you gotten the letter from him yet? No, he just said he was going to send me one. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't got there yet, huh? No. Well, maybe he's— Finding the right paper and the fibers yeah. and everything. He needs a typing pool. Well, he's he's yeah. probably been pretty busy with this Mr. Rogers film, too. He was here on a publicity tour when we met him. That's right. And we talked a little bit about the uh, Fred Rogers film. There was this wonderful moment where he was describing Rogers' secret source, which was to wait. Pause. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, 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 Just this, wait. Was, this was Fred Rogers yes. had the ability to, to not intrude when he asked the question, wait for the question to really get answered from the depths of the other person. And you have always emphasized the value of listening hmm. in a conversation. And you asked him if he had learned more by playing Fred Rogers. 
Is this true that you felt you learned to listen better playing Fred Rogers? Mari Heller, who was the director. Yeah. A wonderful we, director. Oh, she's, she's the boss. We were talking about this very thing, about Fred's, the great power he had, and also a defense mechanism, too, was to listen and not talk. Let the other person, let who you're talking to, reveal themselves. Uh, in the silence, as yeah. well as from a single question. Because we have a tendency, like, for example, for kids, to meet a kid for the first time and say, hey, how, how old are you? Do you go to school? What grade are you in? What's your favorite subject? Do you have a lot of friends at school? Do you like baseball? We don't even give them a chance to answer the question we just asked them. And Fred, particularly with children, would he did this thing, and it's, it's kind of like that. He wouldn't even ask them a question. He would say things like, well, <clears throat> uh, yeah. You, you, that, that's a very impressive belt buckle you are wearing there. And then wait. And then wait for the kid to talk about either the belt buckle or the contest that he wore the belt buckle with. And with my own kids, I, I went back and said, I, I, th I think every parent would be a little bit better by listening to their kids talk as opposed to waiting for them to answer. Yeah, that, that's a, an error that I made when my kids were small. Did you ever, like, pick them up from school and say, hey, how was school today? What happened? And they would never tell you. You have, yeah. you got to wait them out. Have you seen the movie? Yeah, he does a wonderful job. Yeah, it just sounded exactly like Fred Rogers. Yeah, in that yeah he took on Fred Rogers' persona. It was wonderful. I have to phone my children and say, I'm ready to listen now to all those things <laughs> I asked you about when you were seven. <laughs> because I did that same thing. I'd ask yeah. them a question, and then I'd answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear a podcast in this one. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Well, our next guest, after Tom Hanks, uh, just blew us all away. In fact, in this very studio that we're sitting now, uh, he was with you, and there's a piano over there which he was a little taken aback with when he first came into the I, room. I was really worried because when he came in and saw that there was a piano in the room and two guitars, his face fell a little bit. I could see he was uncomfortable as though he he felt he was being he was expected to do something with these instruments. We're talking of course about Sir Paul McCartney. Right. Well, what a wonderful guy. Isn't he wonderfully open and present? He must have talked about his life and his work so many times to so many people. And yet, when he talked with you about it, it was so fresh and wonderful and spontaneous. It was really, we were all mesmerized in the control room. Well, right I, from the very beginning. Right from yeah, the, can well, I just we, play yeah, you the very beginning of the conversation? Oh, yeah, just as we switched on the recorder, this is what happened. That's, that's the kind of thing I'm going to do during the interview. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, what do you? Let, I'm, I'm always working on my voice. What do you do? You know, it's, it's a long story. I never used to do anything, and I was asked by Bette Midler, "What do you do with your voice?" I said, "I don't do anything." She, she, she hated me for that. But um, recently, I started to do some exercises. But the minute I got on stage, I don't know if it made that much difference. So I kind of eased off and just was on stage doing concerts and things. Yeah. And I, I found that was okay. And I listened to old records and think, God, <laughs> it just sounds so easy and right. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. 
I said, God, they, they were good. <laughs> you know, we started off, we didn't know that you were recording. We were just kidding around before we started the show. And we both started vocalizing a little bit. And and now I've learned that trick from him to do... Does that help? Is that yeah, something it does help does? a little bit. Here, watch. Now, here's how I am before. And I'm talking like this. Now go... And now here I am later. This is a little huh. more resonant. Yeah. Wow. wow. What a transformation. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> His affect was so impressive because he's got the most gigantic fame bubble, but but it takes a real altruistic effort to be that open and warm. His fame is so outrageous, a burden. He's so lovely. Yeah. And the burden was brought home to me in a way I hadn't imagined when I heard that he came to us through the the freight elevator yeah. of the building, and he must have to do that wherever Everywhere. he goes. Yeah, yeah. The, the logistics around getting Paul here were, were pretty incredible. Yeah. It's unlike any guest we've ever had. Um, and but yeah, when he walks in, I mean, he's the most humble, most like kind, loving kind of guy, and er- everything drops down. It's it's just sort yeah. of and open his, there. His yeah, his guard yep. about the instruments dropped, and I was asking him about how he finds a melody. He's come up with some of the most beautiful melodies I've ever heard that have swept the world. And and how does he do it, I asked. Do you noodle? Do you noodle on yeah. the piano or the guitar or what? Yes. So if it's a guitar thing and I feel like a sort of ballady thing, then I'll play mm-hmm. some oobly chords. What are oobly chords? Oobly chords. Uh, you know, sweet, and juicy. Where does and... that word come from? I don't know. Okay, there's a piano here. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, we're talking about oobly. You know, it might be like oh, a... Oh, good. Main... Now, this is an oobly. Oobly-ish. So, like a... Or this kind of thing. Just see if it's... Let me, let me just break in on this. I don't want to play the whole thing because I want to, I want to tease the audience a little bit. I want you to hear it for the whole thing for the first time. It's this amazing moment when Paul McCartney actually shows me how he goes about writing a song, how the words start to develop from the music, from actually nonsense syllables. And then he finds where... You got to hear this. This is a wonderful moment, but I, I don't want to give it away all at once. Yeah, as with most guests, we Google the daylights out of them before we come in, and I don't think that's ever been done anywhere before on a Paul McCartney interview. I don't think so, no. I think you've got the first process. Yeah, we're so lucky. I mean, it's a wonderful thing because you see him in the creative process. And we, we should point out that the, the same very badly tuned piano is yes. still oh my in the God. room. That was... and, and he was kind enough not to mention it. We also talked with, you talked to him a little about um, how he managed in his lyrics to uh, relate to people so well, tell stories with his lyrics. It really was sparked by a question that George Harrison asked him about how he came up with these lyrics. And here's Paul's answer. Uh, when I was at school, I had one great teacher. English literature teacher, and he turned me on. He showed me actually the dirty bits in Chaucer. <laughs> and for a 16-year-old boy, that, I said, wow, that'll get you interested in literature. I'm loving this. Yeah. <laughs> but I did love learning about Shakespeare, learning about Thomas Hardy. So I think, you know, during that little period of a couple of years at school, a lot was going into the database. 
and I'm getting the cadences of mm. these great writers mm. too. So I think it's just a theory that when I left school and then started getting into music, I think that kind of stayed with me. You know, I, I, I just naturally produced these words and rhythms that were better uh, than what I'd done before. When we first started off, it was just, thank you, girl. Mm. It was really a message to the fans with the Beatles, you know, because we were starting to get known. So it was like uh, it, everything had a, a definitive pronoun in it. So it was like, love me do <laughs> she loves you <laughs> i want to hold your hand from me to you thank you girl so <laughs> we we're really just trying to relate directly you know and that was great it's a lovely period you know i was talking to my son the other day um who's a musician and he said if the Beatles had stayed doing that sort of stuff, we would have completely forgotten them by now. Mm. It was because yeah. they made that transition that he was talking about. They were so creative and brave. They, did, they knew that they had been accepted in a certain kind of music by, by producing a certain kind of music. And they said, now we're going to try something different. They brought in different types of musical instruments and all sorts of things, too. And for some reason, we, you know, you get lyrics about being in an octopus's garden, which is going to play into a next episode that we're talking about at some point here. And he still performs for 50 or 60,000 people at a time. I went to see him about a couple of years ago in a performance he did at the uh, Barclays Center here in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, he just, the way he related to the audience was fabulous. It's something that I really saw during his performance. I love this thing about singing. You'd think as you watch a singer, well, he's just singing the song and remembering the words and doing it. But you, you're doing millions of other things. I mean, I do a thing in my show that people hold up signs. So I say, it's really nice. You know, people bring these signs. Hey, Paul, I was, you know, da-da-da-da. I say, <laughs> but your brain says, don't read the signs. <laughs> you know, you just stop, you know, just sing the song. But, of course, you do. You start reading them. You're singing a song, you're remembering the words, you remember the tune, you remember what you're playing, and you're reading these signs. And then at the same time, you can be thinking uh, memories that the lyric brings back. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting moment. So does it yeah. give it a flavor in that moment that you didn't expect, yeah. you hadn't done before maybe? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm constantly marveling at what's going on in here, in this yeah. head. Yeah, You know, because it seems to be multitasking. Most of the time, um, you know, I'll sing a song like Eleanor Rigby and I'm remembering the words. But as I'm remembering them, I'm, I'm admiring them, mm. he said modestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. But you always talk, when you're acting, you say you don't do that. You're able to totally get into the moment, right? You do, do, well, are you aware it, of the audience? Yes, I'm aware of everything. I'm aware of the audience. I'm aware of the exit signs. I know I'm in a theater. I'm aware of whether I'm in the light or not. All the things that Paul was talking about that you have to be aware of when you're performing. But I let them all happen and occur to me at the same time, including what I'm going to have for dinner in my laundry list. <laughs> so I, I don't waste any time blocking it. I, ju I just let it 
funnel me even deeper into what I'm doing. But then I am really more connected to who I'm supposed to be in the play. Well, this introduces another connection you recently made where with big sticky suckers <laughs> all over your hands and arms. Rough, <laughs> in the octopus's garden, in fact. The, don't we all agree that an octopus is one of the most interesting creatures we've ever yes. met? Yep. Yes. And you met one. Brilliant. He was all over my arm, kept... It was a she. she. Oh, yeah. she, she, yeah, but she had a male me. name. She did, because originally they thought she was male. It was only later they discovered she was female. It turns out it's not that hard to dis differentiate a male from a female. It's the number of suckers on one arm. That's right. And uh, the male... Uh, Do we want to get into this? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it gets me excited. <laughs> well, but, it was very exciting meeting Rudy, and you met Rudy in the company of this marvelous animal communicator, Cy Montgomery. She's wonderful. She has that ability to communicate with animals just by standing there and looking at them, and they want to come over to her. When I, when I meet an animal, I want to know, who are you? What's it like to be you? And I guess this is what we do with our friends when you yeah. get to know someone. You know, what is it like to be you? I'm so interested in what makes you you. I am so open to whatever you're going to teach me or show me. You know, oh, you moved your ear. That's fabulous. We'll be back with Cy Montgomery and Rudy the Giant Pacific Octopus right after these messages. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. I'm back with Graham, Sarah, and Jean as we continue to look ahead at Season 7 of Clear and Vivid. But first, my encounter with Rudy the octopus gets personal. The octopus was so curious, wanting to know, looking at me right in the eye, wanting to know what I was, who I was, very touchy-feely, and as interesting as I found the octopus, and as much as I admire octopuses, because I've seen them be so smart, but the one thing that caught me short was somebody at the aquarium there said, uh, uh, by the way, don't let, it, don't let her put her, her arm on your face, because she might take one of those suckers and take out your eye. <laughs> 
And I didn't admire her any less, but I I wanted to get away from her. Maybe a little more respect. I mean, she could stick that arm up there without you really realizing it, because she's all over you trying to figure out who you are. That was something we learned that was fascinating about the the suckers, though, that each one of them individually— uh, can pick up 30 pounds worth of weight. So if, if you know, the, they tell you at the, at the New England Aquarium where we were was also don't let them get sort of, you know, three or more tentacles on you because they can lift you right into the entire tank too. Yeah, come on in. It's fun in here. <laughs> yeah. And, but an octopus <laughs> I could stay like... underwater for a half an hour. How long can you? <laughs> oh, we should mention that because now we are members of the Patreon community. Is this right? Yes. Yes, we That's are. That's right. And we actually took some video if you uh, access our Patreon page. Yeah, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Then you will see Alan and Rudy having a nice hug. It's well worth seeing. It's a wonderful encounter. Yeah, and the, the sound that the suckers make is, is pretty amazing. <laughs> Pulling them off. <laughs> and, and when we got finished, Cy Montgomery said, oh, look, I have a hickey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she must have them it's all the time. She does. She has them all over her arms, right? Yes. But she talked about more than just octopus, too. She's had an array of animals there. She has got her most recent book is called uh, How to Be a Good Creature, which describes her encounters with creatures as varied as tarantulas. And one of her favorites, in fact, possibly her most favorite, was a pig, which she adopted when it was a little baby and it grew to be like I don't know, three or four hundred pounds. And she said the pig introduced her to all the people in her neighborhood. If I have any social skills with humans at all, I learned them from Christopher Hogwood, our pig. He. He was so outgoing, and I'm very shy, like very shy. The the only thing I know to talk about really is animals. Um, But Christopher Hogwood showed me how much fun it was to be with people. He enjoyed people. He introduced me to all my neighbors because he got out. And they would call me up, and I would run over there half the time in my pajamas, you know. And and by the time I met them, he'd already charmed them. And so I wasn't afraid of talking to them. So he taught me a lot about how to be a good person, you know. And and the other animal, I think, that, that has just really opened another world to me is the octopus. Because... They are so otherworldly. And the gloriousness of this planet, a creature like that, with all those superpowers, so sensitive, such a vivid life, so immersed in the living sea, such a short life. But such a meaningful, intelligent life. I mean, it just makes you feel like the whole universe is ablaze with with love of life, mm-hmm. with consciousness, with... There's this wonderful quote attributed to Thales of Miletus that says, the universe is alive and has fire in it and is full of gods. And that's what octopuses have shown me, that the universe is so sacred and so holy and so alive. The ability she has to be with another animal and communicate often without words was something that 
um, Betty White told us that she was able to do. And it was almost the same story of just looking at the animal and the animal comes over, a wild animal comes over and nestles with her. Oh, it was it was in uh, at Columbus Zoo, a big, huge territory for this giraffe, and he was in the farthest corner, way, way, way back there, and he they said no, he he won't come over even for food. He won't come over. Don't do that. Well. I can't help it. I have to talk to the animals. So I I said, come on. Come on, sweetie. Come on over. Come on over. And he just looked. Come on. He came from that corner all the way across and put his head over the fence and let me pet it. I was just mind-boggled. I wanted to get back in there with him. <laughs> Can I stay with you for a while? <laughs> when you walk into her office where we did the interview, there's this huge life-size cutout of Robert Redford on one <laughs> side and this enormous bear on the other side. She loves that bear, and, the, and she hugs the bear. And I, 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 These people do things I wouldn't be caught dead doing. I saw that picture. Or if picture. I did them, I would be caught dead. What did she say? I can't, you know, I, can't, I can't remember these conversations. What did Betty tell me? Well, this was this particularly nice introduction to her persona. You are so skilled at creating this character that the world loves you for. And it, it's, you're super sweet, and yet you're saucy and spicy saucy. I don't think I'm spicy. <laughs> I think that's a lot of crap. <laughs> Uh, I'm a dirty old broad. Is what, I <laughs> what I love about Betty is that over the decades, she's learned to find the joke in almost anything. And she she's so sweet and everyday. And under the surface, she's looking for the punchline. <laughs> and I love it. I mean, she said to me, yeah, I love the contact actors make. You get something from the other actor that's so special. And then she said, I'm waiting for that from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there came a moment in your conversation with her where you, you asked her the inevitable question. Does everybody ask you now about what's the secret of longevity? Are you sick of hearing questions like that? No, I'm I'm thrilled at hearing questions. I just I just turned ninety eight. I know. Happy birthday! Just a couple of days ago. Thank you, and I boy did I milk that birthday. <laughs> oh, How did you do that? Oh, I I mean I never have had a birthday like that. It was it was the best one in ninety eight years. But I'm well, and I'm. I'm not doddering around. You sure aren't. You're sharp as a tack. So you must have people must ask you constantly about what what your regimen is. What's you're you're on you're on some kind of special diet that helps you with good nutrition. If you want to find out what her answer is, I suggest you listen to the rest of the podcast because this is oh, a right. pretty great answer. Right, I think I'm going to start trying it too. I like, <laughs> I like the sound of it. <laughs> oh, you're so 
cruel not letting us hear it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> now, just the other day, in fact, two or three days ago, you had a fascinating conversation with another woman, a much younger woman, about how you should be behaving today. And I'm curious about your answer here because um, I wasn't able to be at the recording yesterday and we talked a lot about kind of questions and what to, what to tee up with her too. It's such an important subject because it comes. her book comes in response to the Me Too movement. Her name, by the way, is Cleo Stiller. Cleo Stiller and the book is Modern Manhood, drawn from interviews with 75 men. And it's, it's a real uh, service, I think, she starts from the point of view that abusive behavior is intolerable. So it's not a, it's in no way a defense of that, but it's finding out the difficulties men may be having in adjusting. I asked men, what do you think of the Me Too movement? The theme that kept coming up a lot was, in the beginning, I was in favor for it, you know, with the Harvey Weinstein and the Bill Cosby stories. Of course, mm -hmm. those men should not be in power. But then it got out of control. Now it's gone too far. I, I'm glad, you know, women had their time to say their truth. But enough of that. Let's move forward. You know, if there's something I got to do, just tell me what to do and let's move on. <laughs> they want to fix it yeah. and just get it over with, right? That's one of the problems with all kinds of communication for mm. me is you can't just say, here are three tips, and from now on you'll be okay. Right. You really have to somehow transform yourself or get help getting transformed so that you think about the other person all the time. Yes. Well, and your audience can't see me, but I'm nodding enthusiastically because I'm sure when you say that to someone, they'll push back on you and say, that's a lot of work. Oh, really? Did they say that to you? <laughs> yeah, I heard that a lot. You know, it's like things were simple before. Now they're very complicated. There's, a, there's an effect on everybody, I think, by this reconsideration of the relations between most men and most women. Uh, do, do you two, Sarah and Jean, do you, do you feel that women have to, is it in your experience that women have had to make an adjustment as well? I think about that a lot. I don't know if they're making the adjustment. I don't recall hearing anybody have a conversation about um, the part that's the onus on women to be sure that their take on a man's comment or move or whatever it is, you know, that their judgment is going for what is the guy's intention and what is his you know, how is his integrity and not to be too me too mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's because we're going to be experiencing a backlash to this Me Too movement, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, men should be acting this way. It's, you know, every situation is filled with tons of nuanced information that you should be trying to... Yeah, well, I have to say, judge for women too who have a, a like a when you want to infuse humor into something, or if you have a, a body sense of humor. Yes, and it's it's sort of like oh, let's not do, lose our sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's but but you also think as a woman, do I open that door? And what is he? Is he? How is he going to respond to that? And you know, if 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 it opens the door in a wrong direction, how do I take that back? And, you know, and then also the, the, the response from the man, too, is, you know, you some of them just 
clamp up and are like, oh, yeah. I don't know what yeah. I can say. I don't know what to do. Yeah, and, and we really, you know, I just it saddens me that they're yeah. in that position because it's if with all you know, hopefully more sensitivity to what we think their intention is mm-hmm. and what their personality is, it wouldn't be as hard for them, you know? Yeah. One of the things we talk about during the conversation, Cleo and I, is how this uncertainty about how to behave and how your actions and words will be interpreted has led to many men in business hiring fewer women. <sighs> not mentoring women, not uh, having them out to uh, business lunches or dinners. And as long as men's reaction is like that, that's a deficit. And it's something we have to figure out how to overcome because that's not a good outcome. Yeah. And you also don't want to make it a us versus them situation too. You know, you don't want to have, you know, single sex companies and all sorts of things that arise out of this. That's a backlash that's kind of a passive backlash. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, well, it's fear. It's it, yes. it's like well, what I don't know. I don't know what's happening here. It's too much trouble. Yeah, and too, as she said that she reported in that clip, too much trouble. That's that's hard. It's hard, but like all good things, they're worth the trouble. Uh, a few minutes ago, I ran into somebody just outside the studio here, Bill Nye. Yes, the science yes. guy who uh, regularly does a podcast from this same studio that you're in right now. It's called Science Rules, I think. That's right. Yeah. And uh, you had a wonderful conversation with him in this same studio. Uh, let me uh, play a little clip from that. It really is how he began to move from being an aerospace engineer to being the communicator he is today. It was all because of, believe it or not, Steve Martin. I was out there in the workforce working at Boeing on 747s, and Warner Brothers Records sponsored a Steve Martin lookalike contest. And, and you don't—no, I have face blindness, but you don't look anything no, like Steve Martin today. But I was so—my claim, I had spent so much time thinking about Steve Martin's bits, his act. <laughs> yeah, so you could do it? I could sort of do it, and— the other thing I'll claim is, this is a claim, Alan, <laughs> yes. but I claim that I understood Steve Martin's bit the, better than the, any of the other contestants. So I won in Seattle, but I did not advance beyond that. I went you to the won next, a Steve Martin well, lookalike yes. contest, and, and from that you became the star no, of PBS. No, no, there's more. I started doing, people wanted me to do Steve Martin bits at their parties at big uh, corporate events. (laughs) This is great. I never knew this. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not as good as Steve Martin, but I would do my best. But what happens when you get on stage like that, you want to do your own material. (laughs) And I was doing, oh, just wall-to-wall hilarious jokes about stainless steel and... you were writing jokes about about material about science. Engineering, yeah. Yeah. That weren't especially good. But once in a while I would have a good joke. I can't think of any now. Later on, uh you got a lot more serious. You asked Bill about the climate crisis. Do you remember that? No, I don't. You know what happens to me when the more the more engaging the conversation is and these are all very engaging. The the less I'm able to remember it after the conversation is over. Well, fortunately, we record them. Oh, you know, that's so good. <laughs> it makes the podcast so much easier to do. Pro tip for podcasters, please yeah. record them. Beyond one. 
But this was a this was a particular little section that you wanted me to showcase today. Tell me about climate change and in, in, in the way you look at it. You've talked about climate change as a as a threat multiplier, which it, it certainly must be. Well, so the, I quote that from the, mili- the U.S. military. Oh. Well, I mean, but it's a fine expression. In other words, when you do not have access to clean water, you move. And if, you're, uh, if your farmland is flooded with salt water for enough days or weeks or even months of a year where you can't farm there anymore— you leave, and where do you go? And whose resources are you going to exploit? And what battles or wars are you going to get involved in over water, for example? And when in California you have these very wealthy, or let's say well-to-do communities that are burned down, even those people have to go somewhere, not even, those people have to go somewhere. And that when you burn stuff like that down, you're burning down uh, assets, money, resources, capital. It's very difficult to rebuild. Who pays for that? Let's say they were insured. You're ins- that insurance company, the insurance companies involved are going to reimburse those people, and that's going to raise my insurance rates trying to turn my car. If you're in Florida, in the city of Miami, to a lesser extent right now, Miami Beach, but the city of Miami, and your wheels get flooded with salt water at every king tide, your car starts to rust. Insurance company won't reimburse you for your new exhaust system or whatever. And this is, we're all going to pay for it. These are really important points, and they're very personal. To me, the whole thing is so personal. Yeah. As we're recording this this uh, table talk here today, too, um, uh, Bill Nye was uh, in the guest room, and uh, Jim Green, who is uh, the chief scientist at NASA, uh, who's going to be on our podcast April 14th. Uh, Jim, we probably won't have any clips from him in time for this particular episode that we're doing right now, but he had a lot to say about life in particular, um, life on Mars. And I loved how Jim Green made made the connection between what we're learning about other planets in our solar system and how that gives us a greater understanding of our own planet. So it's not just pure curiosity mm-hmm. that's driving this. is a very practical return we get. Almost all basic knowledge eventually benefits us in a very personal way, in a way that we we can't even imagine when the the first inquiries are being made. Yeah, and, and talk about somebody who's curious about everything. We have Ira Fleta, who who's curious about the universe, squid, octopus, just about everything. Microbes, don't forget that. He loves microbes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in case people don't know, Ira Fleta is the host of Science Friday, a stunningly successful radio show, which now has its own podcast and has video spinoffs. It's, it's really a, 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 an empire of Rewarding curiosity. You you know Ira Flato from the old days, from the right? Very, very how did, old how days. did you meet? <laughs> oh, uh, how did we meet? We met at a AAAS meeting in like nineteen. I, I'm not going to say it's too long ago. <laughs> <laughs> when you were five. <laughs> yes, we have known each other a long time, and he's he's done a tremendous job with with Science Friday. Um, let's play a little clip here, which gives his philosophy of the show. From day one. Um, I always thought that I would be successful if people would sit around the dinner table and say something like, guess what I heard on the radio today Mm -hmm. about 
you know, squid or octopus or, or about the universe or whatever, and that people would sit around the dinner table and talk about something they heard as much as they would talk about the latest sports scores. When we do a podcast or we do a live Science Friday, I think people understand it deep inside of them that when they're listening to it, there are millions of other people sitting around that campfire mm. at the same time listening to those other million people. And there is a sense that of community and a sense that of a shared experience. I'm a great believer in having a shared experience for everybody. Um, and they, there is a certain dynamic that goes on there. And I can tell from when our listeners call in or the, or the number of podcasts that we get that the, the spoken word, the, the sense of uh, we're all listening together to the same thing is very powerful. Well, we have a wonderful season coming up. I think we've uh, touched on just a very few of the many high points in it. Uh, when do we start? On February 25th, next Tuesday, we have Tom Hanks. Uh, on the magical March 3rd, Paul McCartney. March 10th is Bill Nye. March 17th, Happy St. Patrick's Day, will be Cleo Stiller. Uh, March 24th is the incredible, dirty old broad Betty White herself. <laughs> on March 31st, we have Cy Montgomery and Rudy, direct from the New England Aquarium. Uh, April 7th, we have Ira Flatow. Uh April 14th, uh, Jim Green from... Houston, do we ever have a problem? Uh, the NASA chief scientist. Uh, on April 21st, now this is interesting. So Steve Pinker will be a live event that uh, will be here at the 92Y on March 30th. So if you want to get tickets, go to 92y.org. Again, that's 92y.org. You can get tickets for the March 30th event. We are going to record that live. It will be an Earth pre-Earth Day special, which will be available for our listeners, uh, for all of you, on April 20th. 21st, and that is a conversation with Alan Alda and Steven Pinker. And then on April 28th, uh, we are ending the season on what I would consider one of our biggest highs ever. We had done a, a really good recording with uh, all of uh, the women in STEM, and we're following that up with a, a wonderful woman uh, who's at Columbia University, and her name is Kueli Dutt, and the episode is called How a Lack of Diversity and Inclusion in Science Hurts Us All. So we are uh, going to have her here uh, with Alan to discuss um, inclusion and diversity in the sciences, and her episode will be available April 28th. I would encourage all of you to listen to that one along with the episode that we did about women in STEM. Well, I am certainly going to be listening to this season because because I'm so curious to know what we said. <laughs> We've started something new on Clear and Vivid. It's called Patreon, and it allows you to directly support us and engage with us in a much closer way. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, here's what you'll find. For as little as $2 a month, listeners of Clear and Vivid can get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You can find video, extra content, bonus episodes, and all sorts of fun stuff, including behind-the-scenes pictures. And for those of you who have seven questions of your own for Mr. Alan Alda, you might find some answers there, too. Now, you don't have to subscribe for as little as $2 a month to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen to the show and support us by hearing the ads. But you can get all this extra material if you do decide to become a subscriber. 
And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work at the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Give Patreon a try. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. C-L-E-A-R-A-N-D-V-I-V-I-D.